Discord. Just so you guys know, I do uh, put all these presentations. I'll edit it out and we'll place it on YouTube and it'll be on my Spotify page. So we can, uh, you guys can always review it, tell people about it. So uh, this is all going to be new, but I really thank you guys for coming out today. So uh, I'm just going to get started. First of all, thank you for the introduction. Um, it's not often that you get to hear what you've done. So whenever you can get someone to uh, introduce you, even in your home, and remind you of some of the things that you've done, that's a positive affirmation. So thank you for that. Um, I want to thank the council for letting me come out and speak with you guys. I do have history with City Impact. I've been here a few times. We used to have an organization called I Ask, I Act. And uh, we were involved with some politics, some things of that nature, and teaching kids about politics and how they could uh, get more involved in their community. So um, I do like coming here. This is a great facility, and I think they do great things here. So before we get into the actual discussion, I have an exercise that I want to do with the audience. And um, I want everybody to do this. So what I need you to do, first of all, is I need you to take a deep breath. Then I need you to close your eyes. And I need you to imagine that you're walking through the Garden of Eden. You can see the beautiful plants and animals. You can hear the birds. You can feel the sun beating on your face as you walk through the garden and it feels peaceful. As you're walking, you start to hear two voices. And as you get closer, you notice that those two voices belong to Adam and Eve. Now, open your eyes and raise your hand. Who wants to describe Adam and Eve to me? What do they look like in your mind? Anybody? Don't be afraid. There's no wrong answers. Go ahead. Okay, good. Anybody else? Be honest. What did you see in your mind? Okay. Okay. So when I ask that question, the response I get a lot of times is a Caucasian couple, a white couple, or someone of European descent is what they visualize. So we're going to do this exercise one more time. So I want you to close your eyes, take a deep breath. And this time I want you to imagine that you just won an all expense paid trip to Africa, except you can't go to Egypt anywhere but Egypt. I want you to visualize getting on the plane, getting off of the plane, visualize going to wherever you're staying. What does that look like? What do the people around you look like? What is that environment like? Now go ahead and open your eyes. Anybody want to describe what they saw? Go ahead. But you couldn't give me anything specific, though. Anybody else? Could anyone come up with the... Okay, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Hot weather. Dusty. Okay. 
And I feel like that is a pretty common answer, isn't it? Most of the time when you ask people what they know about Africa, that's the response you get. So we did a survey with a group of educators and asked them questions about Africa, uh, what they knew. Could they name any African kings or kingdoms? 90% could not name two African kings or kingdoms. That's very telling. So when I asked the question, what do you see when you picture going to Africa? Most people can't give me a specific location, a city. They couldn't tell me, they couldn't even describe what was going on outside the hotel room. Most people can't even describe the hotel room. Now, if I were to ask you to do that for France or England, would you be able to do it? Absolutely. You would be much more descriptive. But why is it that the second largest continent on the planet, you can't figure it out? We're going to talk about that today. That's part of what I do, is we're going to unlock your minds. So you've been given these misconceptions for years. Well, not way before you were born, hundreds of years ago, the propaganda started about what Africa was. A group of people wanted to come into Africa. They wanted to have access to the resources of Africa. In order to do that, and to do that in the fashion that they wanted to, they had to have a reason. So science and religion became the catalyst for those reasons. We need to tame the savages. We need to civilize them. We need to bring them up to uh, our standards of living. We need to give them religion. And that's what they did. They went into the continent and that's what they did. So today, I hope that you learn that Africa is more than just those basic descriptors that you have in your minds. We're going to have to find a way to look at Africa for what it is. It was the resource that the whole world needed in order to be here. Stop and think about that for a second. We would not be here today, any of us, if we're not for the resources that came out of Africa. And I'll explain that a little bit more later. Okay. Africa became the world's personal ATM machine. Not only for financial, I'm not talking just, I'm talking culture. I'm talking I'm, a broad spectrum. We're talking out of Africa. Okay. Okay. I have what's called preconditions of learning. We have to go over these first before we can get into the, the meat and taters of the material. Okay. This is important. The first precondition for our learning is all human life on planet earth began in Africa. Now, this is something we cannot dispute anymore because DNA evidence has proven it. Archaeology has shown us the way the DNA evidence has solidified it. So it's something that can't even be argued. And it's interesting because there have been scientists that have tried to prove that the cradle civilization were in other places. So they use DNA evidence to try to prove this. And in in the reverse, it proved just the opposite. It proved that Africa was the cradle of civilization. All points are expressed from an Afrocentric worldview. And I'm going to give you details about what an Afrocentric worldview is in a minute. But when you hear me talk about the things I'm talking about, I am thinking about my people as a whole. I am thinking about us before me. And everything that I talk about, that's a general rule of thumb you guys have to understand. Okay? 
We will not argue faith. Africa is the cradle of civilization. It is the cradle of religion. I don't need to argue that. Everything comes out of that. What you believe is what you believe, and we will not argue faith with people. We also will not argue the existence of systematic racism. I would be a fool to spend my time arguing over something that I've spent my whole life researching on. I'd be a fool to do that. And I, you know, John Henry Clark is famous. Uh, he's an Afrocentric author. He's one of my favorite. And he had a quote, and I love his quote. He said, if it does no good for the people of Africa, then throw it into the trash can of history. And that's how I believe. So, go ahead. This is just some general information about what we're talking about. Some terms that you guys need to understand. Uh, I say people of African descent. When I say people of African descent, I'm not just referring to the people that are on the African continent. I'm talking about everyone of African descent that is in Africa and the diaspora, which is considered the sixth region of Africa. That is all areas outside of the continent of Africa. So when you hear me say people of African descent, that's what I'm referring to. On occasion, you may hear me say black or white or use those terms, but those aren't true terms. I'm not a descriptor. You know what I mean? I'm more than that. I'm not a color. That doesn't describe anything about me. That doesn't tell anything about This gives you zero cultural reference about me. Black. So when we say uh, Caucasian or when we say... I don't, I don't even like to use the term white, if I'm being honest, because that's not a true descriptor of the people that I'm talking about. Uh, let's see if there's anything else up there I wanted to get, make sure. So, so this is basically, we're going to talk about the four pillars of Afrocentric understanding. We're going to get into depth in each one of those pillars along, but I just wanted to give you an understanding of when I say PAD or PAD, that's a person of African descent, and I try to use that reference as much as possible. Okay. Go ahead. One more. Okay. The first thing we need to understand is there is a difference between the Afrocentric and the Eurocentric worldview. These are the two dominating worldviews historically. Okay. So when you look at the Afrocentric worldview, it starts with the term Ubuntu. Now that term means who am I if not for us? Who am I without we? Okay. That is a specific survival need for people of African descent. To be clear, in order for us to have survived on the planet, we had to cooperate. We were not going to survive coming out of Africa if we had little pockets and we didn't work together. So that term personifies that. And the term Ubuntu has about 45 different translations across Africa. It's in 45 different languages. There's thousands of languages in Africa, but you can hear it over throughout the continent. So that tells you how important that understanding is of that term. Secondly, man is a part of nature. So you don't fight what you can't control. You have to learn how to deal with it and live and adapt to it. Second, you see up there animism. Now what that is, is that life is in everything around you. Life energy flows through everything. Stone, trees, air, and you have to appreciate that, that energy that flows through everything. We are all connected through that energy that flows through all of us and everything around us. And finally, circular thought. 
What that means is you're not just talking about the future. You're not just looking ahead. You're remembering the past and the present in your way of thinking. You always keep the ancestors in mind and you always keep those around you in mind. Now, the Eurocentric worldview, it started around, I don't know, 200 BC. But what it has to do with is Greek and Roman philosophers created the Eurocentric worldview. Individualism comes out of that. How do you measure what person does successfully? That's through materialism. These are Eurocentric worldviews. So you are judged or measured by your material goods. This was laid out by Plato. This was uh, laid out by Aristotle and Greek and Roman philosophers henceforth in it. Man versus nature. That component you can see on a regular basis. When we don't appreciate the natural environment around us, when we misuse it, when we uh, say, just push through, that is man versus nature. Uh, a good example is the book Moby Dick. It's that man against that whale. And by, by, by any means necessary, he's going to get that whale. That's man versus nature. That's a Euro Eurocentric mindset. And linear thought. That is a straight line thinking. That's saying, I am trying to get from point A to point C through point B. And I'm not worried about what happened in the past. The past is the past. I'm over it. I'm moving forward. And I'm thinking ahead. Now, these worldviews were defined long before we were even born. And culturally, they become ingrained in certain cultures. Go ahead. So. If you are a person of African descent and you live in the United States, which has a Eurocentric worldview, it is automatically against your nature. It is opposing to your culture and nature. Look, a couple of things you guys have to understand. What we believe in today was passed down to us. How we feel was passed down to us. And for people of African descent, you were passed down trauma for generations. This trauma, transgenerational trauma, is a real thing. It's been diagnosed. They first diagnosed it in Holocaust victims and their children and, the, and descendants of Holocaust victims. So if the Holocaust, which lasted a couple years, and as bad as it was, and as many people as it affected and harmed, and as many people as it affected later, if imagine what 400 years of slavery did. Imagine the atrocities over 400 years of slavery did for those people of African descent. Because one way you could tell transgenerational trauma is real is about how people act in public. So there's somebody trying to get in back there. If a person of African descent is in a bank, say a mom is with her two kids in the bank, those two kids are close to her. She keeps those kids close because she wants to protect those kids. She does not want harm to come to those kids. She does not want attention drawn to them. Sit down and be quiet. Whereas a person of European descent, their children may be running around the establishment. A little loosey-goosey. But that's okay because they're in a place of safe haven. They're safe there. So they don't have to worry about the same pressures that that person, of, that mother of African descent has to worry about for their kids. Protecting them. That was passed on to her transgender. Her parents passed that down to her. So how do we deal with that? Over the course of years, there was a, let's say, okay, we had generations of Afrocentric scholars that came through. They started in the 19th century. 
And, and then in the 20th century, we've got another crop of Afrocentric scholars. Through the course of their research, they started to understand that what we've been taught has been wrong. And what, we, what our brains, just like the exercise that we talked about at the end, what Adam and Eve looks like in your mind, that is conditioning. So we have to break those chains. For people of African descent, you have to break those chains. That's a mental slavery. Long after physical slavery is gone, you still have the scars, which are mental slavery. And how do you break that? Well, we have the, the keys uh, for living in the diaspora. That's what we've developed. This wasn't just my idea. These keys were developed by psychologists that understood the Afrocentric and the Eurocentric worldviews. So it starts with relearning history. How do you relearn history? Well, you have to go back to the books. You have to dust off those authors that understood Afrocentric, Afrocentric history. Chancellor Williams, John Henry Clark, I mentioned his name before. Uh, uh, Anti-Diop, you have uh, 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 Joseph Buchanan, you have, um, uh, uh, I, I mean, there's just a plethora of people that did the research, that went to Africa, that actually interpreted the walls and the translations on the tombs of Kush and Kemet. Egypt is also called Kemet, just so you guys, if, if you hear me say that. So those people is who you have to learn from first. Those are the researchers that you have to go to. So when you start to learn the history, the true history of Africa, it's going to change your thinking automatically. Okay. The second thing you have to do, understand the mechanics of systematic racism. Those mechanics don't go back 60 years. They go back hundreds of years. They go back to the 1400s. They go back to the 1450s. To be clear, when the Catholic Church gave permission Spain, you go this way. Portugal, you go this way. We're going to divide the planet in half. And you claim it in the name of the church. Okay? At the same time, Constantinople was getting overrun by the Moors. So the Pope at the time was a little bit nervous about this situation because he sees the Moors creeping closer and closer to Europe. So what does he say? He puts out this proclamation that if you can enslave any non-Christian, pagan, or African, that would be the Moors. And they did this to help protect what they had or what they wanted to have. So initially when they went into Africa, it was about the gold. There was this guy named Mansa Musa that they had heard about. He was uh, the king of a, a mighty empire, the Mali Empire. He was one of the richest people ever on the planet, worth about $400 billion in today's terminology. And he was on his trip to Mecca and he traveled throughout Africa on his Hajj to Mecca. And he was so rich that he bankrupted the local economies. He put so much money and gold into the local economies that he bankrupted. Now, 200 years later, the Europeans find out about this Mansa Musa and all this gold in Africa. And we're like, we got to get some of this gold. That's where the gold is at. So understanding the mechanics of systematic racism and when it starts, that's important. Then you have to practice self-care. After you do these things, you're going to get stressed out. So you have to do things to take care of yourself. Self-care is more than just um, self-care involves going to church, going to the synagogue, mosque, whatever you do. Self-care involves going to the barbershop going to the beauty salon, self-care involves getting involved in your community, exercise, diet, nutrition. These are all pieces that are involved in self-care. And if you're doing all these things, 
The last thing you need to do is stay involved in your community. If you are staying involved in your community, then you're feeling those feelings that you get when you see a George Floyd. It will change because you know you're doing something about it. You know your mind is open to the knowledge that you're doing something about it. At the bottom there is just a brief image and what I just wanted to remind people of what the diaspora was and how many people came out of Africa into the rest of the world. And we're not even talking about uh, the, we're just talking about the transatlantic slave trade. We aren't even talking about the Indian Ocean slave trade. You guys don't even talk about, you don't get taught about the Indian Ocean slave trade in school, but that started 700 years before the Africa or for the Atlantic slave trade. The Indian Ocean slave trade involved 80% women that were taken in slavery over the course of those years. So it's just important to understand the Indian Ocean slave trade and it is the African or Atlantic slave trade, okay? But stay involved in your communities. You go ahead, change the tile there. So when we go back and say relearn African history, I start with the Kingdom of Kush. And the reason why I start with the Kingdom of Kush it was the first purely African kingdom. Arguments can be made that Kemet had influences from outside cultures. They could say that um, the Hyksos came in and influenced the Kemet, the Kemites. You could say uh, other Asian cultures came in and influenced uh, the Kemites or Egyptians. You cannot say the same for the Kushites. Their greatest influence was the Kemites because they were so closely uh, 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 closely related and uh, they shared the Nile River. Um, now, the reason why I start with them as well is because they had some really historic people that no one knows about. They had some women, because I like to give women their props. They had some women that were the queens and a succession of queens, not just one, they had successions of women queens. And in order for you to be a queen of the Kushite kingdom, you had to have some skills, okay? You couldn't just be a Nordic, no. You had to have some managerial skills, you had to have some fighting skills, and you had to be able to stand in front of these men and lead them, okay? So there are several women uh, that were known for that, but one of my favorite, uh, this uh, artist uh, out of Omaha did this for me, and her, her name was Amani Renus. And Queen Amani Renus was known as the one-eyed queen of Kush. What made her so important is she was the first person to bring the Roman Empire to the negotiating table. At the time, the Romans were running through everybody. They were just conquering all these lands and they were they had their eyes set on Africa. They had already conquered Kemet and they were working their way down the Nile River and they saw Cush as the next place to go. They were trying to work their way to the kingdom of Axum is what they were trying to do. But they had to get through uh, these warriors, the Nubians, as they were known, were the greatest archers in the world. Archery was said to have originated in the Kushite kingdom by the Nubians. They had this little ring that they put on their finger and this was kind of like how they helped to steady their bows, like their secret, but they were known to be able to shoot your eye out from a hundred yards easily. So the Romans were not prepared for the strategy that Amadi Renus put forth to them, forced them to negotiate. She did this boss move too, by the way, I almost forgot about this. So there was a statue of the emperor of Rome right? Augustus, he's got this huge statue. You know, he puts this stuff up everywhere, you know, just to, you know, give his glory to him, the Roman Empire. And she tore down the statue, 
took the head off the statue, it was a huge statue, took the head off, and buried it underneath her palace in Miro, the front steps of her palace, so that every time you walked up to her palace, you were walking on Caesar's head. And he knew that. Now, this story was not told. This story was lost. So um, they had a, a project in Egypt where they were building this dam, the Aswan Dam. And in the process of building this dam, they were going to end up having to flood the whole region what, where the Kushites lived. So the uh, UNESCO and all these different countries got together and they said, we need to get in here and try to uh, preserve as much as we can. So they went in, moved some of the monuments and artifacts out, some of the tombs, lifted full uh, structures and moved them, relocated some of them. Some of them did get lost. So there's a lot of history that, from the Kushite kingdoms that is lost, but we are starting to piece some together because now we have underwater divers that can go in and do things now that they you know, used to not be able to do. So they have archeologists that put on the diving suits and they go in now. So we're starting to learn more and more. And if you guys uh, follow uh, archeology span at all, uh, new finds are getting popped up all the time with new information about the Kushites. Go ahead. Okay, there are several other kingdoms that you should know about as well. So I mentioned Axum. It was a Christian kingdom. Uh, Axum also was important because they actually, without them, there may not even be Islam. So when the Prophet Muhammad's followers were getting persecuted in Mecca, they went to Africa and they saw, he told them, Muhammad said, go to Africa, go to the Christian kingdom of Axum and seek refuge with them. So the Christians in what's Axum, which is now Ethiopia, they gave him refuge. They gave his followers refuge and pretty much saved them, allowed them safe passage, you know, allowed them a place to, to worship and then persecute them. So uh, it's really important that first kingdom and their link in Africa. Uh, the second one right up there, the Wagadu Kingdom, also known as the Ghana Empire, will be the first West African Empire. And uh, they were the first ones to start mining for gold. Now, gold mining was not necessarily mining. It was a lot of panning for gold uh, is what they did. But what they did really well was they had the network of rivers and they had people that would transfer the gold. So the gold dust would start, you know, you'd find this gold dust and as it worked its way from collections up the river to the kings, he would have big piles of gold dust that he would use to make, you know, their elaborate ornate stuff. So uh, that was the first West African kingdom. The Mali Empire, which is considered the uh, most talked about because there are several stories that I would consider movie quality stories that came out of uh, the Mali Empire. Uh, so that was one. You, you get into the Mali Empire, you're going to learn all kinds of things about Sundiata Kiete, he was this great founder of the empire. You can learn about Mansa Musa. You can learn about Mansa Musa's brother, Abu Bakr, who actually came uh, uh, 200 years before Columbus to the United States or to the Americas. And there's uh, proof of that as well. So uh, Mali Empire is extremely important to learn about. Uh, and finally, the Songhai Empire, which is considered the last great empire, uh, Western African empire before colonialism. Uh, came along. So learning about uh, how they, it was an Islamic empire, but the key was that they did not force Islam on the people of Songhai. They allowed them to still keep their, their 
their local practices and culture and customs. So uh, that was a good mix for them. Go ahead. Okay, must read. So we talk about um, authors that you need to know about or books that you should know about. And if you guys want more information, I will uh, more than happy to give you more information on these. But, but these are just a few that I think you are must read books. Now, Chancellor Williams actually wrote two books, uh, The Destruction of uh, Black Civilization and The Rebirth of Black Civilization. The, both of those are pivotal pieces. Uh, John Henry Clark, uh, and like I said, I did mention Ivan, uh, I wanted to mention Dr. Ivan Sertima because he was extremely controversial. His book was, uh, They Came Before Columbus. And at the time when he wrote this, he was actually banned by the community, the historical community, because they did not want the information he was talking about to necessarily be public knowledge. Because this narrative that Columbus was the first, you know, discovered America, you know what I mean? And, and he sheds light on the fact that uh, even Columbus himself testified in his second journal uh, on his journeys to the Americas of Africans having already been here. So uh, really fascinating work that he had put out there. Uh, I do want to mention also Dr. Uh, Rashidi because he recently passed away. He was one of my mentors. And um, um, unfortunately, I didn't get an opportunity to go on a tour with him, but uh, he opens up the doors as far as the African presence in Europe uh, and the African presence in Asia. Uh, and he uh, sheds light on the descendants of many of what we would think would be European and Asian people, but they have African descent in them. And he was uh, pivotal. So I do want to let you guys know, these are just a few authors. Uh, this is in the realm of history. There is also another realm of psychology that introduces a whole nother group of authors to you as well. Go ahead. Okay, we're back to the systematic racism thing again. And I had talked about the timeline and when I talk about racism, so people define racism differently. You'll have a political definition of what racism is. You'll have a sociological definition of racism, what racism is. I just want to give you from an Afrocentric perspective what racism is. In order for someone to be racist, they have to have the ability to physically, mentally, economically, psych psychologically, to oppress someone else, to hinder someone else's growth and pro progress. And they have to have the motivation of themselves first in doing so. Does that make sense? So, so you can be prejudiced. Oh, I don't like this person because of this or that. They're color, they're fat, they're whatever. That's a little bit different than being racist. To truly be racist, you have to have the power to influence and to actually put it out there. So when we talk about the KKK being racist, we talk about them speaking outwardly about their white supremacy, but we also understand that they take on roles in government. They take on roles in politics, roles in, in uh, policing, roles in society. So that's how systematic racism works. It's not necessarily that one person is being racist. Oh, that's racist. So when you talk about it, you can't just say, to, oh, that's racist. You have to understand what makes it racist. What makes what they're saying racist or what they're doing racist? Is it hindering your growth and progress? 
right? Is that person keeping you from getting a job? Now, we know that there are employers that could be racist, okay? So when I talk about this timeline, I start uh, generally for me uh, 700 years before the transatlantic slave trade. I start with the Indian Ocean slave trade and the Muslim incursion into Africa, okay? Muslims came to Africa first. They brought Islam to Africa, but they also brought slavery to Africa. It was slightly different in form, but still it's slavery, okay? The difference primarily was that you could work your way out of slavery under the Islamic form of it. Whereas in chattel slavery or what we have in the Americas, there was you were a slave for life. That was the biggest difference. But I do like to bring that up because they targeted Africans. Initially, they were enslaving everyone. The Moors were going to Europe. They were fighting the Europeans. They captured Europeans. They enslaved them. Okay. Now, there was a revolt of European slaves where they killed off a whole city and their masters. And after that, the Arabs no longer enslaved the Europeans. The same thing could be said for way slavery worked in the Americas. They initially enslaved not just Africans. They would enslave Native Americans. They would enslave Asians. But they found that Native Americans were dying off twice as fast. African slaves were much more durable. They lasted much longer. They could handle being out in the heat, working those long hours and all that. So that's why they targeted African slaves primarily. So initially, when people talk about, well, it wasn't just Africans that were slaves. This is true. It was not just Africans that were slaves. But it became just Africans that were slaves. And that form of slavery lasted for hundreds of years. The slavery that involved Europeans was not hundreds of years. It could be traced to maybe 20 to 30, 40 years. Totally different timeline. But that's something that should be said, okay? Uh, we talk about uh, the first slaves brought to the Americas in 1619. Okay, I have to mention this because um, I find it to be ironic that people are arguing over critical race theory when as an Afrocentric educator, I didn't think the education was good to begin with. So I don't even, so in my mind, if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s in the United States, well, just grew up in the United States and you cracked, cracked open a history book, who do you think the, wrote that book? It was a European person. They wrote about Africa. H.G. Wells is a, if you guys know history, H.G. Wells is considered a famous author. They say he wrote what was called scientific history is what they call it. But he was used in the classroom. He was referenced. And H.G. Wells said the cradle of civilization was the Mediterranean. It was between the Tigris and Euphrates River, somewhere along that, which would make the cradle of civilization a Asian or Eurocentric concept as opposed to it being an Afrocentric concept, as opposed to the cradle of civilization being in the Sudan, along the Nile River, which they now know is where it was. So there's, so if you look at Africa, Africa that you see now was totally different, say 5,000 years ago, okay? It was much more green and lush. There was a force across the continent. The Sahara Desert was non-existent at that time. So along the Nile River, that land was plush and perfect for farming. 
The Nile River flooded, and whenever the Nile River would flood, it would leave sediment on both sides of the Nile River. And that sediment, well, that left with, well, 2,000 miles of the river. So the Nile River is 4,000 miles. 2,000 miles worth of Nile River was sediment on either side. So that gives you about 4,000 square miles of farmland. So that's how those civilizations of Kush and, and Kemet came to be. You got to be able to feed large groups of people. Once you can feed large groups of people, then people can be specialized. I'm not, I don't, you don't have to have everybody focused on gathering food. Now you can have a guy working on pots. You're going to have a guy working on writing. You have a guy working on these different things. And that's how civilizations grow and, and build and become what they become. So on this timeline, we talk about the United States of America and its founding. 1776 is an important year for our country, right? The Declaration of Independence was written by, who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Somebody say it. Thomas Jefferson, right? What do we know about Thomas Jefferson? Well, he was one of our founding fathers. The year the Declaration of Independence was written, 90,000 African slaves were brought to the United States or to the colonies. That year that it was written. And the man that wrote the Declaration of Independence owned 200 of them. So that's important to know. When he wrote that, that's why when we talk about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and we say that that was not written for people of African descent, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The person that wrote the Declaration of Independence did not have his slaves in mind when he wrote it. If that was the case, he wouldn't have had them. He'd have freed them. Okay. So... You should study the timeline. I don't want to bore you with it because there's a lot in the timeline. But understanding the timeline, one thing that you will get from it is that whenever there is a surge in, let's say, civil rights or human rights, then there is also a rebuttal very soon. Society, the United States typically responds in a negative way. For example, Obama was elected president. He did his eight years. How did the nation respond? We went total opposite. And I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that's the natural response of the country is we flipped, we flipped the script. Go ahead. One more. One more. Okay. So self-care. I wanted to talk about this real quick because um, it's, a, it's a piece that when we look at, let's just look at COVID and who it affected the most. It was people of African descent that were the highest rate of death because of COVID. And that's because it had, they had the worst healthcare. So self-care is understanding the importance of healthcare. I grew up in a family where my father refused to go to the doctor. And it was almost to the point where he almost lost his foot before he decided to get it figured out. The African-American community has an issue with the medical community, rightfully so. When you look at the Tuskegee experiments and what was done to people of African descent, when you look at how Vietnam veterans were treated because of the Asian orange and what they suffered from, there is a genuine distrust with healthcare. That has to change. And it starts with simple things. It starts with understanding what healthcare is and where to get it. It starts with self-care, taking care of yourself on a daily basis, understanding good hygiene, understanding 
uh, good mental health, what good mental health is, and understanding the importance of rest. That's one of those keys that I don't think we, we focus enough on is rest. Because what do we always say? Rise and grind. That is, that is the, you know, this adage that we have, rise and grind. Get your rest. It's not just rise and grind. Because if you rise and grind, but you're not, you don't, you're not effective if you're not 100%. And then in the end, so um, one of the things that I've learned is that people that do what I do, there is a couple of health issues that they end up having. One is they go blind. Chancellor Williams and John Henry Clark both went blind because they read so much and they read in poor lighting. So, and they didn't give their eyes rest. Also, not eating properly because you're always on the move or always researching. I have to remind myself, set alarms to eat because that's important. Proper nutrition and what you're eating. That's all part of self-care. Go ahead. You see the charts, African-Americans rate highest among a heart disease, rate of death. Six, uh, 68 is the average life expectancy of the African-American male. Whereas I believe it's 78 for the uh, European white female. That is a big difference in life expectancy. Go ahead. So the community involvement piece is really important because like I said, it goes back to you taking the information that you've just been taught and sharing it with other people. There's no sense in me sitting in my office and reading all these books and writing all this stuff if I'm not sharing it. I could write a PhD level book, but what does that have to do with the common person? The layman is not gonna read, read that book. So you have to make it accessible to the average everyday person, make it easy for them to read and understand. So the information that I have up here, you guys, when you leave, you can grab that. That is basically the layman's version. It gives you the basic rundown of what you need to know. And so you can go forth and learn other information. But that community involvement is beyond. And that's that Ubuntu that I was talking about, right? That's me coming full circle back and re representing my ancestors, representing my present, and representing my future. That's that circular train of thought. Okay, go ahead. Is there anything left on that one? Oh, so these are just a couple memes that I put out. I know that people like the memes and imagery and I'm trying to get better at it because I understand that it's flash communication a lot of times and uh, uh, you guys want to digest information quickly. So I, I just like to throw those up there. You could just scroll through them. The rhythm is in your blood. That is an actual thing, okay? Uh, there's research that's getting done that is talking about uh, verve and rhythm and the effect that it plays on your body, how it affects your health. And uh, so uh, so if any of you, just as a general idea, if you go to church or if you go to um, any uh, religious function where there's music involved in motion, it will stir a feeling in you. And that is a energy that is connected with everyone. So uh, there's amplifiers to that, so to that community connection. That's called a community spirit that you have. Go ahead. Raising people of African descent. So um, when I say people of African descent, I'm not just talking, I'm talking about, you could be, you could have a mom that is of European descent. You could have a father that's European, I don't care. 
If any part of you is of African descent, then you are of African descent. And that is not my choice. That is society's choice. That is what society has chosen to say. You are of African descent. Now, it doesn't seem like that right now, but history has already proven that when the time comes, that's how society will respond. It will say, if you have any African blood and you are of African descent. So I like to say it and roll with that because I'm okay with it. Go ahead. Uh, African history is world history. There's no separation. Because remember what I said at the beginning. Africa is that connected to everything that's gone on in our history in the world. There are companies that are billion dollar companies today that owe their profit, their, their money to the slave trade. There are people that have nice houses here in Lincoln, all across the United States. There are companies all across the planet that owe their profits to Africa and to this day are making profits off of Africa. Uranium, the same uranium that was used in the Manhattan Project, the same uranium that was used to make those two bombs that were dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, those came right out of the Congo in Africa. So they were mining, they needed Africa. Do you see what I'm saying here? That's how important the continent of Africa is to this planet. Right now, your cell phone contains lithium. The battery in your cell phone contains lithium. Where do you think that lithium comes from? Africa. That's important to know. So when we talk about historical people uh, of African descent, my thinking is a little bit different than say the general public. Because in order for me to place you in that category on that Mount Rushmore or make you an icon, I have to say that what you did was for people of African descent. Your life was spent and dedicated for people of African descent and their benefit. And if everybody else, if the other people benefited from it reciprocally, that's good. So the people that I have up there, such as Harriet Tubman, Maya Angelou, I have in the very middle there, that's Imhotep. He was considered the first scientist, educator, psychologist, philosopher. He was right out of Egypt. Okay. Designed the first step pyramids. So it was part of the first third dynasty of Egypt. So extremely important person of African descent. Obviously, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. And the only person I have up there that is modern is Denzel Washington. Because I look at him and I see someone that exemplifies what a person of African descent can accomplish in a Eurocentric society and still maintain his culture, still maintain who he is, not lose who he is. Go ahead. Let's do the next one. So initially when they invited me here to do this, they wanted me to do three different presentations. They wanted me to do my four pillars of Afrocentric understanding. They wanted me to do uh, about the kingdom of Kush. And then they wanted me to do cultural identity. Well, that would take like three hours because that's a lot of stuff. And to be honest, I could spend hours on each subject. And there's so much other information out there that I'm not even giving you guys because we don't have the time. 
So I'm trying to break it down. So I do want to go over this piece for uh, because uh, Jay, you had uh, I kind of mentioned it a little bit with you earlier, and I do want to uh, emphasize uh, cultural identity and the importance of cultural identity and how important it is for me myself. Okay, so go ahead. So we talked about this before. All human life, I'm and this is the reminder to you: all human life on planet Earth began in Africa. So that image of Adam and Eve should be two Africans to you. That should be your image of Adam and Eve. That doesn't take anything away from the validity of what the Bible is trying to say to you. What I'm saying is the importance of imagery. Okay? So we talked briefly about the Nile River and how the Nile is crucial. It was the central nervous system of Africa, and it is it is where the two civilizations of Kemet and Kush grew up and prospered was along the Nile River. I talked about flooding. The key about the Nile is that it flows opposite, okay? So the Nile starts in the mountains of Ethiopia, and it flows till it gets to the Mediterranean. So it flows from south to north, so it flows opposite. And it also floods at specific times of the year. So when the Nile floods, that's when it's passable. That's when people can take boats down the Nile. But when the Nile is dry, it has what's called these cataracts in the Nile. As you look in the, the small portion, it's these rocks that are in the middle of the Nile. And that protected the kingdom of Kush uh, from outside invasions. You could only go down the Nile River at certain times of the year. So they understood this and you were flowing against the current to go down the Nile River. So the kingdom of Kush was able to develop uh, over the course of starting at like 5,000 years before Christ and unadulterated for a long period of time because of that. Go ahead. So I did mention H.G. Wells. He wrote these two volumes and he, uh, notice, notice the picture. This is what kills me is the picture because Look how little of Africa is even involved in that picture. And look what we're giving you all of Europe. That means something when you do that. That signifies the importance of a specific area and you're nullifying the importance of a different area. Go ahead. So historically, what you were taught about what the Egyptians looked like, based upon... Hollywood and books and the media is this is what you were told Egyptians looked like, which is not true at all. Now, there was a period of time in Egypt when the Hyksos, who were considered European or Asian in a, a complexion, when they came in and they ran Egypt or Kemet. That was the 24th dynasty. But they were forced out. And that was a very small period of time in the big picture of Egypt. Go ahead. There was also this false narrative spoken about Africa. So in my household, you could not learn. We did not watch Tarzan in my household. Because Tarzan represented European domination in Africa. This guy comes in as a baby. He picks up the animals. They all follow him and listen to him. And he fights off the savages. He fights off everybody else. Is that a real picture of what Africa is? But that's what the media put out to the general public. Go ahead. 
So as time moves on, and even in curriculum in schools, what is taught? It's the slave trade. It's taught that Africa started with the slave trade. So 5,000 years didn't exist. And this is where you began, taking whoopings, being submissive, and overcoming. What was Kemet and Kush really like? These are taken right out of the tombs in Kush and Kemet. And that shows you something starkly different than what you're told. Go ahead. We talked about Amani Renus, super bad. Make sure you know about her. Go ahead. A reminder about the different kingdoms as well. Mansa Munsa, Sunjatat Kinyate. Go ahead. I did speak briefly about around the 19th century when we started getting uh, a new group of Afrocentric educators who understand the importance of representation and writing your own history and speaking your own narrative and being able to speak your own truths. Uh, Frederick Douglass, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, and um, Marcus Garvey are three primary ones I like to speak about because they believe in Pan-Africanism. Now, I don't, I personally believe the ideas of Pan-Africanism still have their place but the concept itself is dead, and that's a, a different discussion. But I do believe that uh, there is merit to having a pan-Africanist mindset, which means that you always keep Africa in your mind when you're doing things, basically. Go ahead. So it's well documented that our country had an issue with our civil rights leaders in the 50s and 60s. And uh, this quote is uh, by one of our leaders, supposed leaders at the time. The greatest threats to the stability of the American government since the Civil War is the Civil Rights Movement. Now, the leader of the FBI actually said that. And he followed through with his comments by investigating, wiretapping every civil rights leader at the time. They had dossiers on Martin Luther King, on Malcolm X, and there is rumor that they had involvement with their deaths. All the faces that you uh, see up there are people that were killed because of their opinions, because they wanted equality. Go ahead. So in the 70s, there was this, this beginning of Afrocentric resurgence where you had Afrocentric uh, uh, ideas cropping up in sports. Athletes were starting to speak up a little bit. You had a couple like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. There were several, Muhammad Ali. Uh, you have uh, the Black Panthers, who were a community-first organization uh, that creeped up. And all of them were starting to reconnect with their Afrocentric understanding. Go ahead. This also trickled into the music of the 80s. When hip-hop first started, Hip-hop that we had is not what we have today. Hip-hop and rap were not categorized differently today, okay? Now, you have 
these categories where they say alternative rap and they put uh, groups like a tribe called Quest and things like that as alternative. They were not alternative rap. They were hip hop. It was mainstream hip hop at the time. And it was Afrocentric in nature. As you can see, they embraced their culture and their history. And they were trying to get people of African descent to do the same. Go ahead. But something happened. All of a sudden, this genre of music became popular and people started seeing you could make money on it. And they started seeing the power in the music. Now, all of a sudden, we have a problem and we have to change the narrative. So Jerry Heller is a prime example of that man up in the corner there. He is actually the person who founded NWA. These guys that are in WA weren't even from the same neighborhoods. They were all brought together by this guy to form this group. And we're given this name and this toxic identity. And this new genre of music was born called gangster rap, which took over from where it was before. As opposed to being socially conscious, now we became socially unconscious. If you notice up there, I also have uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, up there. And the reason why I have that up there is because it was actually made by uh, a white couple. And they wrote the script, developed it. And if you really watch the show and pay attention to Will Smith's character, there's a lot of tox toxicity in his character. He's misogynistic. He's labeled, he's lazy, he's trying to cut corners as often as he can. He's got a cousin named Carlton who's articulate, as educated, who he constantly berates because Carlton is different. He's got an uncle who's a judge who he can't get along with. And the idea that his mother had to send him all the way across country to his wealthy family in this privileged area in order for him to be successful. So... I include this in the negative narrative for people of African descent. Go ahead. So BET is another example of how the media has an influence on what you see, what you believe, what you feel, and what you know. BET was owned by an African-American, but BET eventually was bought by Viacom. And you see the couple down in the corner there on the left that's who owns BET currently. And if you pay attention to the programming that you see on BET, it'll show you that the programming is pretty toxic. You don't see very many shows that show you empowerment in a positive way. You get soap operas, you get power, you get reality TV, but you don't get realness. You don't see any show on there teaching you how to budget your money, how to buy a house, you don't see anything on there teach you how to get a job, how to articulate. Go ahead. Now, what are people of African descent? The diversity, the range in culture, the range in understanding and experiences cannot be underestimated. It has to be embraced. Go to the next slide. So the reason why I put this particular slide on here, uh, there's a couple reasons why. First of all, um, 
real imagery of kings of Ghana, of Africa, is important. And then one of the few times in which um, Hollywood got it right was, and they didn't get it right 100%. I'm going to say they got it 80% right, was the movie The Black Panther. And the reason why I say they got it 80% right, not 100%, because it's a fictional place. It's not even a real place. They didn't. They couldn't even have found a real place, you know, to, to, to give you this story. So, uh, but, but what it did do is it showed people of African descent how powerful they could be, how elegant they could be, how royal they could be, because that imagery is not common to them. They're, they don't see that on a regular basis. Also, I like to tell this story. Um, my kids went to Beatty Elementary and I was picking my kids up from Beatty Elementary one day. I'm sitting out in front of the school and school was letting out. Groups of kids were coming out. And this was at the time when the Black Panther movie first came out. And there was these two kids of European descent that walked out. And the one kid looked at the other and said, all right, man, I'll see you tomorrow. And he said, Wakanda forever. And the other kid right back to him said, Wakanda forever. And I just was like, oh my goodness. That's how you influence, right? Now you have a generation of kids that have seen uh, African superhero. So they know they exist and they know that they're pretty cool, right? And it's okay to be one. It's okay to want to be one. Once again, a reminder, the four keys. If you want to survive living in a Eurocentric worldview society, learn your history, understand the mechanics of racism, practice self-care, and then stay in your community. Stay involved. So I think I'm going to go ahead and cut it off there. The last thing I'm going to say is anytime I do a presentation, the, one of the things that I remember in the back of my mind is that I'm not just doing this for myself. Because I had this circular thought, I think about the 6,000 ancestors that had to survive in order for me to be here. Meaning, during the Atlantic slave trade, during those 400 years, 6,000 of my ancestors had to survive over the course of that time in order for me to be here today. And I always thank them for their strength and for their courage. And I use that and I draw from that in everything I do. And that's it for today. All right, now to my favorite part, the Q&A. Mm -hmm. Back to was the other name that created the book for Columbus? Oh, uh, Ivan Sertima. Right. Uh, Ivan Sertima, when he wrote that, what year did he write that? And like, you like give more context? Sure. More so, context of like why he came to that conclusion? So, this was the 70s, and he used, he didn't just rely on opinion. Oh, let me, re, let me back up for a second. Africa's history is brought to you in several forms. They have an oral history in Africa, okay? Because Africa did not have any written, 
you're good. Africa did not have any written language for many years. The oral history was the first primary form of history in Africa. When the Arabs came to Africa, okay, brought trade and slave trade and just trade in general, they brought written language. So the second form of history we have in Africa is that written Arabic language history that those traders brought. And then finally, we had the archeological evidence, meaning digging in the dirt, pulling it out, restoring some of the things that were lost and, that, and, and reinterpreting that evidence. So what the doctor did was he used all these, all these, he took all three of these forms and he came to his conclusion. Abu Bakr was uh, Mansa Musa's older brother. Abu Bakr abdicated the throne of the Mali Empire in about 1200. This is about you know the 13th century when he did this. So when he abdicated the throne, he said he was going to go out and explore the new world. He wanted to see what was across the ocean. So he took, so this journey happened twice. The first time he sent a thousand ships on his own, on their own, and only a couple of them came back. And the second time, Abu Bakr went himself with 2,000 ships across, the, across uh, trying to find, you know, what's on the other side of the water. So eventually, um, our, so, by the way, he was never heard of again, but was heard of 200 years later is when Christopher Columbus came to the New World and he was talking to the natives. The natives described meeting dark-complected people that had filed down teeth who brought to them a golden spear. So this golden spearhead, they actually gave to Columbus and he took it back to Europe. So that was one of uh, the doctor's uh, pieces. Then along the coast, uh, there was uh, a discovery of two uh, two uh, graves that contained uh, the remains of two Africans. And the question was, how did these two graves of these two Africans, which dated back to this time, appear on this coast this far away from Africa? And the final piece was the Olmec heads. So there was a group of uh, natives uh, in, the, in the region of Mexico, they were called the Olmecs. And they have these giant heads which are, uh, there's, I believe there's 17 of them. I could be wrong, but I believe there's 17 of these giant heads. And these Olmec heads are, they look like Africans. They have African features, African noses. Some of them even have African hairstyles. And it is believed that Africans had came over and taught the Olmecs how to do these, how to carve in stone. So that's, what I, that's to answer that question. Uh, I guess just to help me out a little bit. So the, the youngest one that was sitting here is my little sister-in-law, my little sister. Her name is Sunday, and as you see, she's very fair, just like this kid. Uh, her father is an African American. Mm -hmm. How do and we, we try to help her and then her other sister, who are other little sister-in-law? She's also fair, but she's like this. Mm -hmm. How do we help them? I guess be comfortable with knowing that their identity is of African descent. But it doesn't show that on the outside. And okay. Like, uh, my little sister Scarlett, she's going to be in high school, but she's French. And she tried to get involved in, like, the African American uh, caucus. Yeah, exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. They said that she would need to prove that she's a descent. You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, that was, it was, it was, it was a little. That sounds weird.
I want them to be comfortable knowing that, like, you may, you may not show it on the outside, on the outside, but you are. Like, your father, he's definitely, mm -hmm. like, he's got Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And the first thing is they have to know the history. So once they start learning the history of Africa and start seeing Africa for more than just this distant mystery, do you see what I'm saying? You have to make it a reality for them first, that the continent is a reality for them. Secondly, they have to understand that the melanin in their DNA is undeniable. So let's say, for example, uh, she marries a person of European descent and they have children. It's very possible that their children will come out with Afrocentric features because that melanin is a dominant trait. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it could be even two generations away and all of a sudden it pops up. Do you see? So she needs to understand that, that it's in her DNA. Regardless, regardless of the complexion of her skin, it's in her DNA. And lastly... If she were to go to Africa, even though she is lighter complected, they're still going to embrace her. They're still going to say, you're African. Do you understand? So when I talked about um, if you uh, have any drop of African that you're African, that's because historically there's been several instances where society has used that. So uh, when San Domingue, or I should say when Haiti, uh, that when that country was going through his revolution, there was a group of uh, mulattoes, which were, they had uh, ancestry that was part Spanish, you know what I'm saying, or part uh, French, and they had African, half and half. So their mother was probably African, and their father was a slave owner, right? So there was this whole group of mulattoes that were living in San Domingue, and they were able to get jobs, and they had income. They even had slaves. But in the end, when they had the revolution, and they wanted to have the same rights as the Europeans that were living there, they were denied those rights. That tells you, regardless, you are still considered of African descent. Yep. Any more questions? Come on with them. Okay. Well, I think to begin with, I'm always encouraged by education because we have education. So let me be clear. Without education at all, we'd be chaos. Now, I am discouraged. So I don't, I'm not, I don't get into politics because um, it does me no good with politics. But I will say that having watched the recent governor's election here in our state of Nebraska and how uh, critical race theory uh, and the idea of racism and systematic racism were used as talking points for them on their campaigns. One guy saying, well, if you believe that systematic racism exists, then you're not a true Republican, you're a Democrat. You know, these, this to me does not create obviously a good climate uh, as far as education goes, because I understand that these are the people that are responsible for what comes in the classrooms or who they appoint at positions that go in the classrooms. So slightly discouraged by that. Um, 
But what encourages me more is that we have more outlets besides just the schools to get education now. Now, as our community centers start getting embracing uh, that alternative to school, uh, alternative to that Eurocentric education, as, as I'm gonna put it, Western education, the community centers start embracing that, you will have more alternatives and you'll be able to get a broader picture. The whole point is I want people to look at the world in a much wider scope and lens than they do. People use a Eurocentric lens or an Afrocentric lens, right? I need people to start using a more holistic lens and seeing how we need to be able to work together no matter what. You see what I'm saying? No matter what your worldview is, how you have to look past all that and work together. So part of the problem though is we get caught with one worldview, right? And it's just, this is the only way it has to be. You know what I mean? Your success is rated by having a house and a car and, you know what I'm saying, being married and how much you have in your bank account. And, you know, that's what true happiness is. In reality, that may not be the case. You see what I'm saying? The poorest people on the planet can also be the happiest people on the planet. Those do not go together necessarily. Do you see? But when you focus on individualism and materialism, that tends to be the case. So I'm encouraged yet discouraged at the same time. And as long as um, what encourages me is me getting opportunities like this. You had a question? So in my viewpoint, you cannot combat systemic racism because we are in the society. This is this the society that we live in. That's why the four pillars are so important, because if you decide to live here, all right, you what are your choices? You either live in the United States and deal with it or you say, I want to move back to Africa. And that's the problem I have with the Pan-Africanism movement is you're not just going to be able to take. 40 million people and just move back to Africa, right? You're gonna destroy the local economies. You're gonna make cost of living for those people in Africa extremely high. It's just, that's just not feasible. And who's gonna give you that much land that you're gonna need for that? So what's your other choice? You can either carve out your own piece of the United States and call it, you know, Africa land, which is not gonna happen. Or you can learn how to deal with living in this society which is what you have to do. And that's what the four pillars are designed to do. Help you understand how to deal with it. If you follow the four pillars and you're doing these things on a regular basis, it's gonna improve your way of life. It's gonna change your mentality about everything. I don't even look at some of the things, the way I used to look at uh, the issues in our society, I do not look at them the same way now. I understand that they're gonna continue just because this is the nature of our society. It's what it was built on. Remember I talked about that. There is no part of our society that owes, can owe its, it was all built on the back of Africa. Our highest institutions, Harvard, Yale, they just came out and talked about it. Harvard had to sell 200 some slaves in order to keep the doors open. These are our institutions of higher learning here in our country. So there is no form, no, so if you're going to live here, you have to learn how to deal with it. And that's how you deal with it. Oh, no, you can. Right. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks for coming out, man. I appreciate you. Yes, yes.
So there are uh, white perspectives that I still find. Uh, there's a guy named Leakey who came out. There's a book called Origins. And uh, Leakey would be considered one of the first Europeans. Now, granted, he was an African. He was born in Africa, you know what I'm saying, raised in Africa. But part of colonization is how he got there, obviously. But as an archaeologist, he was pivotal in finding remains of Africans and carbon dating them accurately and being able to form that the real concept that Africa is the cradle of civilization. So uh, Richard Leakey is one person that I would say, and he's a Eurocentric guy, but still I would, I would put him in there. Uh, then I would say Chancellor Williams. And the reason why I say Champs Chancellor Williams is that he didn't just dig in. Now there's nothing wrong with that. Going to libraries, getting research, doing, doing it that way. He did first person research. He went to Africa himself. He learned hieroglyphics. He learned several languages and he went over there with a team of people and they all worked on his books and came together with his knowledge and correlated together. So I would start with him. I would definitely go uh, uh, Chancellor Williams. And then um, there is a volume of books by UNESCO. Um, and it's, um, there's, I believe eight of them and it is all about African civilizations. So if you go out and uh, want to look up those books by UNESCO on African civilizations, they're extremely in-depth. Uh, uh, Two-thirds of the writers or people that participated came out of Africa. One-third were out of Europe or the rest of the world. So they have a very diverse of people that participated in those books. And those books came about after when I said about the Aswan Dam and the flooding of the Nile. They were doing all that. They came about of that, of that scramble for that information. Uh, led triggered that, and they end up having these conferences, and so the UNESCO books are really good as well. So those are three heavy hitters to start with. You're welcome. Any more questions for me? And that's challenging because, first of all, going into those meetings, there has to be the intention to want to become better at, you know, be a better human, better person. I think, you know, that's the element that I always find curious is that it's just being a better human, right? It's, it's trying to get people to understand that by understanding more about other people and other cultures, it makes you better. It makes your interactions better, not just with other cultures, with each other. 
So what ends up happening when there's a room full of white people and there's no one to checks and balances that is the, the conversation never will get any deeper than that. Because now you're going to have to ask them the really hard questions. Do you see what I'm saying? So the as the moderator, you have to ask the hard questions, right? What is racism to you? What is systematic racism to you? Do you even believe it exists? Before we even have these conversations, where is your mindset at on that? You know what I mean? Because that's important. Because they might say, well, I don't believe it exists. Ask a person of African descent, do they believe it exists? Now you've got a whole nother perspective, right? And isn't that what it's about, us really understanding? If you're living in this society where your view has been the dominating view and, you know, all of a sudden these things creep up and it's like, it makes you uncomfortable. Don't you want to figure out why? You know what I mean? How you can make that better? So it's not as uncomfortable, those those feelings that you're getting. It's because you got to learn the other views. That's where it starts. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Anything else? Anybody? It's storming outside. We got it going on right now. Well, I want to say once again, thank you everyone for coming out. Um, don't forget, please find my YouTube. It's uh, United Diaspora to Africa Foundation. That's the YouTube page. And uh, I do have a podcast. You can have It's on all the platforms. Uh, and that is Komi Gayanfi Presents. And it's the African Studies Lecture Series. So please, oh, website, udafoloc.com. Go to the website, check it out. I have a lot of information. I do have to update the website, so I will be doing that here pretty soon. Uh, yes, I have information up here. You guys, please take some of this stuff. Uh, it cost me to print it out. I need you guys to take it and get that information out. I appreciate you guys for coming out. Thank you, man.